Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. See. So, how are your New Year's resolutions going? We are just shy of two weeks into 2020, which is about the time that whatever vows we had, whatever changes we had vowed to start making, start getting challenging. In fact, there was a study done by US News and World Report that shows that about 80% of people do not achieve their New Year's resolutions, and most of them give up by mid-February. Business coach Marla Tabaka thinks that the word resolution is itself part of the problem. She writes, it's a strong, demanding word. It screams, I must. It's a demand that we place upon ourselves and there is no room for failure. And that's the problem, I think, with resolutions. No matter what time of year we make them. Whatever it is that we resolve, we usually feel like it's something that we have to do on our own. By our own power, our determination, our grit. That whatever problem in our lives it is that we have decided to address is the result of some failure on our part. And so then if we just try harder, then we'll be able to fix it. We'll be able to make ourselves better people. But somehow, it seems like the harder we try, the harder it gets. So maybe we've resolved to be more organized, only to find that the streams of stuff that keep coming into our homes seems relentless. Or maybe we've resolved to be more patient with the people around us. And at first, we're pretty good. We let those inconveniences just kind of roll off our backs, but... Pretty soon, we find that the email we were waiting on didn't come through, and we got stuck by someone going below the speed limit on the way to the grocery store, where we ended up in the slowest moving checkout line, and so much for patience. It all makes me think of that classic episode of I Love Lucy, where Lucy and her friend Ethel go to work in the chocolate factory. You know this one? So they've struggled in other jobs in the factory. They're given one last chance on the line where they're supposed to wrap each chocolate as it comes down the line. And at first, it goes great. But slowly, the speed on the conveyor belt picks up and they can't keep up. And before you know it, Lucy and Ethel are stuffing chocolates in their mouths and in their hats and down their dresses, trying to keep any unwrapped chocolates from making it any farther down the line. It is hilarious, right? It's a great scene. Lucille Ball was such an amazing comedian. But really, I think the scene is so funny because we know what it's like to feel that way, right? We try to do something new. It starts out reasonably well. And before we know it, things have gotten completely out of hand and we throw up our hands in despair. That is so often what happens when we try to change and when we assume that that change, that any improvement, is up to us to make. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous puts it this way. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. 
but we are not made to be self-propelling creatures. And so our efforts at self-improvement and transformation usually result in failure. And then we end up more discouraged than we were to begin with. And maybe nowhere is this more true than with spiritual change. When it comes to spiritual growth and transformation, self-propulsion gets us nowhere. That's exactly the phenomenon that Paul is describing in our passage from Romans today. He is talking about what it is like to try to change through self-propulsion, through his own efforts. Carol did a great job reading it, but it is notoriously a difficult passage. It's almost a tongue twister. And it kind of sounds like Paul is just repeating himself over and over. So, like I did with our passage from Romans 5 last week, I'm going to read you the version from the message Because I think it captures a little more clearly the heart of what Paul is saying. So this is Romans chapter 7, end of 7, beginning of chapter 8. I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, Paul replies. I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, They take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I am at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ 
like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Paul gives us such a good description of what it's like to try to will ourselves to be good, to do better, to live a godly life under our own power. He says these familiar words, I do not do what I want to do, and I do that which I do not want to do. He says, I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. My decisions don't result in action. Most scholars think that what Paul is describing here is his life before his conversion, before his road to Damascus encounter with Jesus. He does everything he knows how to do to be good, and it doesn't work. He tries self-propelled spiritual transformation, and it fails over and over again. And if you have ever seriously tried to achieve some kind of spiritual growth, then you know how Paul feels. If you have ever tried to address some area of sin in your life, if you've tried over and over again to be better, then you know it just doesn't work. Like candies on a conveyor belt, the sin just keeps on coming. And the more times we fail at being better, the harder it can be for us to want to keep coming back to God. We are so disappointed with our failure that we're pretty sure God must be disappointed too. And that is a terrible way to live. But what if there were a different way? A better way? more life-giving way to understand how spiritual transformation happens. I think there is. And I think a little bit of a grammar lesson might help us. So once an English major, always an English major. Forgive me, but I think this is helpful. (laughs) So go back with me in your mind to your middle school English grammar lessons. You might remember that sentences are constructed of different parts. There's a subject, an object, well, for your direction, a subject, an object, and sometimes an indirect object. The subject is the person or thing performing the action of the sentence. The object is the person or thing that's being acted upon. And the indirect object, if there is one, is the person or thing that's receiving the action. So if the sentence is, Joe reads Jane a book, Joe is the subject of the sentence. He's the one doing the action, which in this case is reading. The book is the object of the sentence. It is the thing being read, the thing being acted on. And Jane is the indirect object. Because Jane is the one who receives the action of Joe's reading. So what on earth does that have to do with spiritual transformation? 
Well, I think that when it comes to our spiritual growth, we often get our subjects and objects and indirect objects all mixed up. We tend to think and act like we are the subjects, like we are the ones who are responsible for doing the work, for doing the action of transformation. Our hearts are what gets transformed. They're the objects. And we treat God as the indirect object. He's the one who receives our work of spiritual growth. He's the one we do it for. Just like Jane is the one that Joe read the book for, we think God is the one we do our spiritual growth for. And there can be a whole host of reasons that we might try to do this, that we might try to do the work of spiritual formation, transformation for God. And honestly, we are probably not consciously aware of most of them most of the time. But maybe we approach our spiritual transformation this way because we think that that's just our job as Christians. So God saves us. And then it's our task to grow into Christ-likeness. Or we might think that growing spiritually is what we owe to God. That it's the least that we could do when God has gone to all the trouble of sending his son to save us. And deep down, most of us probably think that growing spiritually will make God happy. It will please him. That maybe, just maybe, it will make God love us or like us a little bit more. And so when we fail in our efforts towards spiritual growth, which inevitably we do, then we're left feeling not just like we have failed ourselves, but like we've failed God too. And that is nothing if it is not a gateway to discouragement and despair. But the good news is that when we think about spiritual transformation that way, we've got it exactly backwards. We are not the subjects of our spiritual growth. God is. God is the one who is responsible for the action of transforming our hearts. God is the one who's responsible for shaping and molding our wills and our desires and our actions in ways that will reflect God's character. We are the objects of God's transformational work, not its subjects. And that means that our spiritual growth isn't something we have to do. It's something God does. And when we know that, when we really, truly, deep down know and accept and experience that, then that is a cause for joy. If failure to accomplish our own spiritual transformation is the gateway to discouragement and despair, then accepting that God accomplishes our spiritual transformation 
is the gateway to hope and freedom. And that's what we see Paul saying at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. Paul describes his inability, our inability to change our hearts, and then he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer. We cannot save ourselves and we cannot sanctify ourselves. We cannot make ourselves more holy. Only Jesus can. And Paul is so convinced that Jesus not only can do that, but that he does do that, that Paul makes this astounding affirmation. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Not because we're good, or even because we've gotten a little bit better. Not because we've worked hard to change, to transform, to sanctify ourselves. There is no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. That's it. It is Jesus who frees us, who heals us, who grows us, who transforms us. We just have to let him. And that can be the hard part. Because letting Jesus do what only Jesus can do means that we have to admit that we can't. And we have to allow him to do his work his way and on his schedule. We have to surrender our spiritual transformation to God. But even that, God doesn't wait for us to get right, thankfully. Because God will take even the slightest bit of willingness on our part, and he will do great things with it. I have seen that in my own life over and over again. Even in my own conversion story, such as it is, it bears this out. So I grew up in the faith, in the church. I never knew a time when I didn't know that God loved me and forgave me and that Jesus had come to show that love and that forgiveness. But somewhere when I was around about sixth grade, I realized that I needed to take that on for myself, this faith that I had been raised in. And I had heard, probably in Sunday school or youth group, that I needed to turn my whole life over to God. But for whatever reason, to my little adolescent heart and mind, that seemed like a really big ask. It wasn't that there was some part of my life that I consciously wanted to hang on to control of. It was just that totally surrendering my life to a God that I was still coming to know felt scary. And so I remember lying in bed one night and praying. And I remember saying to God, God, 
I know I am supposed to give all of my life to you, but that feels really scary. So do you think we could start with just part of my life? (laughs) And the older I get, the more I am convinced that God was utterly delighted by that prayer. That God was thrilled to take whatever little part of my 12-year-old life I felt like I could give him. Because God knew what he could do with it. God knew that he could take that little bit of willingness, that little bit of surrender, and that God could use it to prove himself to me. To prove himself to be faithful. To prove himself to be trustworthy. To prove himself to be able to shape my heart and transform my spirit over and over again. To prove that God is the God of absolutely limitless grace. Last week, we ended this time with a time of silent prayer. And we listened for God to speak to us about his love for us to reveal something about us that God delights in. Today, I want us to conclude with a different prayer practice, one that just may help us to surrender to God and to receive his transforming grace. You only have to participate in it if you want to, but you do have to close your eyes. That's the rule, okay? Everybody close your eyes. I will keep mine open on my notes, but I won't look at you. So... Settle in, get as comfortable as you can, close your eyes, take a deep breath in, and then exhale. Now make your hands into fists and hold them out in front of you, palm side down. As you do that, ask God to bring to your mind if there's any part of your life or your heart, that he would like you to surrender to him. If there's any way that you're trying to change yourself or to accomplish your own spiritual transformation. And then ask yourself, is this something that I am willing to hand over to God? Something that I'm willing to release, even just a little bit? And if the answer is yes, then just open your hands, palms down, like you're letting go of whatever it is that you have been holding on to. And if the answer is no, that's okay. Maybe you can ask God to help you come to the place where you're willing to hand it over to him.
Now turn your hands over, palms facing up. Rest them on your lap. And ask God if there is anything that he would like to give you in the place of whatever you just released. It could be some knowledge about yourself or about God. It could be a change in your heart. It could be an experience of God's presence and love. Whatever it might be, just receive it. And finally, I invite you to raise your hands up. Remember, everybody's got their eyes closed. Nobody can see you. Raise your hands even just a little bit and silently offer to God a word of thanks or praise for whatever comes to your mind. Now lower your hands and open your eyes. A new power is in operation, Paul says. The spirit of life in Christ. That spirit is in you. That spirit is in me. And that spirit brings change. Brings hope and freedom and growth and life. The Spirit of God lives in us. The Spirit of God loves us. The Spirit of God transforms us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.